Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 108, Pope Adrian, or Hadrian II. So last week, we had a big moment with Nicholas the Deluxe. And this week, we have another big moment to address, or at least a milestone for us to address. And that is that Pope Hadrian II is the last life in the continuous Liber Pontificalis. That's right. We're done, aren't we? Well, after this, we will have some fragments and some sort of supplemental accounts, and there's like a few small attempts at revival, but this is it. This is the last one in the continuous Liber Pontificalis, and it is unfinished. Whoever wrote it did not get a chance to finish it, so... We end, like, mid-sentence. Just trailing off. This time, for real, we are saying goodbye to the source that has given us so much to work with from the very beginning, despite how much fun we have made of it. So it is the end of an era. Let's begin this end of an era with Pope Hadrian II was born in Rome around 792 to a prominent noble family, and his father's name was Talaris. Now, interestingly, the Liber Pontificalis also makes note that his father, Talaris, later on in his life, was also a bishop. Now, Raymond Davis suggests that this is probably Talaris, the bishop of Minturne. The Liber Pontificalis also says that he was a relative of Popes Stephen IV and Sergius II, which, as we discussed in their episodes, suggest that they were potentially distant members of the Colonna family. Hadrian entered the church young and rose through the ranks, but unlike many of the popes we've covered as of late, this wasn't a straight shot for him. Because instead, he lived as a layman and got married to a woman called Stefania and had children. Oh. Of the children he potentially had, we know he had at least one daughter. But sometime around the age of 50... Adrian decided to become a full-fledged priest and was ordained in 842, eventually becoming the cardinal priest for San Marco. However, he did not set his family aside and existed within that sort of liminal space that allowed for clerical marriage as long as it followed clerical celibacy. But uh, sources differ on whether this was something that Adrian and his wife kept to. They might have just been a married couple in all senses. They've already had children. They're doing well. He just also wants to be a priest. Now, during his time as a priest, Hadrian had a phenomenal reputation. The Liber Pontificalis recounts acts of extreme personal generosity and hospitality, kindness and self-sacrifice, and that people thought of him so well that he was repeatedly considered as a candidate for pope. And you might remember, we've already mentioned this once before during the election of Benedict III, but apparently he was also strongly considered a candidate during Nicholas's election as well, even though we know Nicholas was already a super powerhouse. So he must be good if this is the competition for Nicholas. It's also possible that he might have actually been elected 
had it not been for the influence of Emperor Louis II in Rome at the time. But just as we said in Nicholas's episode, unlikely. But in either case, in the election of Benedict III or the election of Nicholas, Adrian had refused the papacy outright. And not just in that I'm not worthy sort of protest that we've seen a fair bit of, but vehemently enough that his rejection was actually accepted. He was like, no, I'm not doing it. Oh, wow. Horace K. Mann calls his refusals exquisite excuses. Exquisite now. Exquisite excuses not to be Pope. And it's entirely possible that these exquisite excuses had something to do with the fact that he had a wife and family and had no intentions of setting them aside. But when the third call to the papacy came, after the death of Pope Nicholas, Hadrian finally accepted, which was likely a good thing because the Liber Pontificalis insinuate rather heavily that the public wasn't going to take no for an answer this time. Quote, But when Holy Pope Nicholas of apostolic memory had departed this human life and Hadrian was passing his 25th year as a priest, all of the city of Rome's citizens and all those from abroad who chanced to be present, poor and rich alike, both of the order of the clergy and the whole crowd of the people of every age, occupation, and sex, spurning all his excuses, wanted Hadrian and yearned that he be given them as prelate and pastor. No one in the whole wide world was found unless he wanted the promotion of himself or his own favorite who did not long in his inmost heart for Hadrian to be promoted to this pinnacle. So basically, unless you were a self-ambitious, indulgent douchebag, you wanted Hadrian to be your next pope. And after a papacy like Nicholas's, this level of unity on a candidate was a blessing for Rome. If our series so far has taught us anything, it's that after a papacy like Nicholas's that is so forceful, we're usually followed with conflict between those who want to continue the forceful policies and those who want a different approach or to be reinstated if they've been condemned. Yeah, usually after a strong guy, we got a bit of an upset. Yeah, we have like a Sabinian to a Gregory, (laughs) which is just the worst. So Adrian being so well-revered by all made him an ideal compromise all around. It's even said that the people were in such a frenzy to have him consecrated that no one wanted to wait for imperial representatives and confirmation. However, Hadrian made them wait. Quoting from the Liber Pontificalis, Prince's envoys heard this and took it ill, indignant, not because they did not wish for this great man as pontiff. In fact, they wanted him very anxiously, but because, though they were present, the Roman citizens did not invite them and agree to their involvement in their intended election of the prelate-to-be. When they heard the reason that this omission was not done out of despite for the Augustus, but entirely with an eye to the future, in case a custom of waiting for the envoys of princes at the election of Roman prelates might be fueled in this way and take root, they laid to rest all the indignation that they felt, and they too humbly approached to hail the one elected. After confirmation from Emperor Louis, 
Pope Hadrian was consecrated on December 14th of 867 at the age of 75. Much older than our last pope. Yes, so much older than our last pope. He's already been a priest for 25 years. And he moved into the Lateran Palace and brought his wife and daughter with him. Oof, that's a interesting choice. It is an interesting choice, but no one seems upset about it at the time, surprisingly. But things got off to an unexpected, inexplicable, and rotten start. Because during Hadrian's consecration ceremony, the Lombard Duke of Spoleto, Lambert I, showed up in Rome and just started pillaging. Why are there still Lombards? Well, because Lombard is now a region, and they will always historically have that Lombardness about them. But this is now a Duke of Spoleto who just decides to show up and pillage, and all that goes with that. He just felt like pillaging. Yeah. He was on a day jaunt. He felt like taking a day trip over to pillage. Yeah, and, and that's pretty much as much of an explanation as we get. Because it's really unclear why this is happening or why he chose Rome. The only thing we can guess at or hazard is that considering that Lambert is in and out of rebellion against our emperor Louis II, this might have been like a shot at the emperor. Or I don't know, maybe he genuinely thought he could take Rome for his own dominion. The most likely possibility is that he was in fact sent by Emperor Louis in order to destabilize the fervor over the new pope and reestablish an imperial presence, given that the people of Rome were prepared to throw the whole wait for imperial confirmation thing out the window, which is not something I would have thought of, but was suggested to me by new friend of the show, Dr. Clemens Gantner, who was a tremendous help unraveling some of the mysteries of this episode. And there are mysteries to come. Who's our new friend? Dr. Clemens Gantner. Oh, hello. He suggests that Lambert was sent by the Emperor Louis to reestablish imperial order, and that this is deliberately not mentioned in the sources as to put no blame on the Emperor for the fact that Lambert sort of overinterpreted his mandate to enforce imperial confirmation and came to Rome to actually plunder rather than making a violence-free show of force. You know, maybe they're like, hey, go in there because they're really, really attached to this pope and they're forgetting their loyalty. Just go and make a show of it. And he went, great, that means I can murder and, and plunder and burn and all of that. Man, what does this guy do all day that that is his conclusion? I mean, he's the Duke of Spoleto. They have been a problem this whole time. Roll decks to jump to conclusions here? <laughs> like, Jesus. Well, for sure, he's just like, just gung-ho, he would like to rage. And there he goes. So he would like to rage. So after they retreated, Lambert and his men were immediately excommunicated for this. Uh, Obviously. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> and the Liber Pontificalis suggests that he full-on lost his dukedom as a result of this. Okay, so excommunicated and lost his dukedom because, as you mentioned last week, we are in the era where if you're excommunicated, nobody talks to you. Yeah, it actually matters now. 
But this was an extremely uncomfortable and concerning situation that Hadrian then had to ensure was, was never going to happen again. And he's like, whoa, this came out of the blue. How do I ensure that this isn't going to happen again? So for that, he turns to Emperor Louis II, considering that the emperors were supposed to be, you know, the protectors of Rome and not send people to pillage. So if Louis had mandated Lambert, this was a very successful outcome for him because now Adrian very much wants to be on good terms with Louis II and the Franks as a whole, particularly in light of the instability of relationships that had resulted under Pope Nicholas. He's like, hey, these dukes are just going to come in. I really need to reestablish a relationship with the emperor. Now, certainly, Pope Nicholas had scored some major points for papal influence as a whole, despite those terrible relationships. But Rome and the Papal States need to be protected, so it's time to restabilize these relationships. However, all of that being said, and the papacy wanting to be very stable with the Carolingian kings and emperors, the Carolingian kings and emperors themselves were about as far away from stable as they could possibly be. Oh no. So let's deal with King Lothair II of Lotharingia first. This is our oh, yes. problematic divorce man. King Lothair of Lothair Town. <laughs> Lothar, remember? <laughs> Lothar. So he had been pressed into a corner by Pope Nicholas, who would not allow Lothair to set aside his wife Tudberga for his mistress Waldrada, even after Lothair and Louis had advanced on Rome, resulting in Lothair and Waldrada's excommunication. Now, Hadrian continues Nicholas's defense of Lothair's marriage to Tutberga, but also allowed Lothair to press his case again, something that Nicholas absolutely would not have allowed. So in 866, Lothair sent Tutberga to Pope Adrian directly and commanded that she incriminate herself to him, which she might have actually done, because remember, she also wants out of this marriage by this point from this horrible man. Yeah, a bad man. So he's like, go to the Pope and tell him you slept with your brother. And she might have oh. done that. But Hadrian is like, no, we know how this is going already and sends her back to Lothair. So Lothair comes to Rome himself and met with the Pope at Monte Cassino, and Adrian lifted the excommunication and received Lothair into communion, but only after the king swore an oath that he had not been with Waldrada since Pope Nicholas ordered him to set her aside. More invitations? <laughs> Same invitation. All invitations. So Lothair swore that he had not been with Waldrada once since Pope Nicholas ordered him to set her aside, which is, of course, a massive whopping lie, which Hadrian likely knew. Yeah, he's like, no, I haven't. No, no. I have not seen my mistress once. This woman I'm madly in love with, the mother of my children. Yes, mother of his children. That's right. We have this recorded in the Annals of Saint-Bertam, 
Lothair got the Pope to say Mass for him and to grant him Holy Communion on the understanding that since Pope Nicholas's excommunication of Waldrada, he had not lived with her, had had no sexual intercourse with her, had not even spoken with her at all. The wretched man, like Judas, made a pretense of having a good conscience and neither feared nor shrank from receiving Holy Communion with barefaced effrontery on this understanding. So, like, everyone, all, even the church sources are writing about what a massive liar this man is. And, of course, Lothair had no intention of being without Waldrada and would go right back to her. But after he left the Pope... He caught a fever and died on his way home on August 8th of 869. Okay. So that whole problem... Is dead. Solved-ish, but far from forgotten. Struck down. (laughs) Struck down, yes. This lying liar face was going to his mistress and was struck down. But it was far from forgotten, of course, because this creates a bigger problem. Lothair's death without an heir left Lotharingia for the taking, and every single one of those Carolingian kings, Charles the Bald, Louis the German, and Emperor Louis, all felt entitled to inherit the territory. Which, as it has done repeatedly throughout the whole Carolingian period, completely destabilized all of their alliances and relationships into heated rivalries. Ever more so when Charles the Bald had himself crowned as king of Lotharingia in 869 and made a treaty with Louis the German to divvy up Lotharingia's wealth and land without considering the Emperor Louis at all. That's not good. They're all going to fight over this territory. Two of them are going to team up and just completely exclude the other. You, You can see this is just the mess of boys that the Carolingian era is. (laughs) The mess of boys. It is a mess of boys, and they're acting like messy boys. So, Pope Hadrian supported Emperor Louis II, as might be expected, given his efforts to shore up defenses for Rome. So he attempted to mediate the conflict, advocating for the rights of the emperor, and condemning Charles for his particularly brash actions of just going ahead and crowning himself as king. So to make a point in response, Pope Hadrian publicly crowns Louis as emperor later on in 872 to demonstrate his support for the emperor. To stop the rowdy boys. Yeah. And incidentally, he also wrote to Ingmar, who is Charles the Bald's primary bishop, instructing him to advise against Charles' actions. Isn't Ingmar... Bishop of Reims. Yes. Wasn't he excommunicated for a hot moment? He was, uh, yeah, he was very difficult to deal with. He doesn't like to be, he doesn't like to be obedient to the Pope or to anyone else. So yes, this is the same one. Okay, so is he gonna do what he's told? No. No, of course not. Um, He just completely ignores the letter from the Pope. And this also had the unintended consequence of Charles the Bald retaliating by refusing to acknowledge Hadrian as Pope. Not that that seems to have amounted to much at the time, but it was an overt snub, and so therefore another layer of these messy boys changing dynamics. 
The Pope also sent envoys to Louis and Charles as well, hoping to persuade them to reconsider their course of action. But just like before, this amounted to relatively nothing. But unfortunately, throwing in with the Emperor Louis didn't bode as well as the Pope had hoped. Aside from the conflicts with Charles the Bald and Louis the German, Emperor Louis also faced repeated revolts in Benevento and Spoleto, because of course. And that, coupled with the earlier snub of his imperial missi at the election, it seems to have made him extremely suspicious and overbearing. And Hadrian, unfortunately, doesn't have the fight in him that Nicholas did, so very quickly, Adrian's approach of submitting to the emperor on temporal matters started to look a lot more like the pope just submitting to the emperor full stop. Not great. This is not necessarily the continuation of massive papal papatum and phallium that Nicholas had. And this seems to be the most clearly represented in the Pope's relationship with his papal legate slash imperial missi, Arsenius of Orta, who was in every way keeping close tabs on all the Pope did and directly advising the emperor about it. Now, we've mentioned Arsenius a few times before because first and foremost, he is the uncle of Anastasius Bibliothecarius, and the papal legate who convinced Louis' envoys into confirming Anastasius, not Benedict, as pope, causing that whole anti-pope debacle. So you remember him. Yeah. Which, by the way, that whole thing of convincing the Missi to elect his son or nephew as anti-pope rather than Benedict, he seems to have completely gotten away with at this point. He's faced, like, no consequences, there's no change in his role, likely due to his connections with the Emperor, because he's still continuing to serve as Papal Legate. And although we didn't mention it at the time, it was Arsenius who delivered Nicholas's excommunications to the bishops who granted Lothair his divorce, and who delivered the order for Lothair to take his wife back. So, this whole time, even though he messed up everything, He's been super busy with both papal and imperial affairs. And because of this, we should also check up with Anastasius, for those who are not on our Patreon, because he's getting a whole very detailed full episode as an anti-pope there. The last we saw him, the anti-papacy plotted by his uncle had failed, but he had not been excommunicated or punished by Pope Benedict III, when he was rightfully consecrated. Now, remember, Anastasius had been excommunicated prior by Pope Leo IV for disobedience. But since that point, and throughout Nicholas's papacy, Anastasius had rehabilitated his reputation quite significantly and had been returned to favor and returned to the church and had even served as an advisor. The level to which he advised Nicholas is up for debate, but it's definitely the case that during Nicholas's papacy, Anastasius had once again become a very influential man. And this only continues with Pope Hadrian making him the official papal librarian, hence the Bibliothecarius. Ah. 
So he's doing well. He's doing very well at this point. He's being very influential. His uncle is there doing well, being influential, keeping tabs on the Pope, you know, the whole thing. But then everything goes completely and utterly pear-shaped. The one thing we have already established about Arsenius is that this man is insanely ambitious and is willing to go to extreme lengths to increase the status of his family. Horace K. Mann says, quote, The sole thought of men like him was personal aggrandizement. And now he's the advisor of the emperor, and his nephew is advisor to the pope and papal librarian, and things are looking good. They're doing very well. But Arsenius also had a son, and this son is Eleutherius. Or he could have possibly been another nephew. There seems to be some confusion because Eleutherius was either Arsenius's son or Anastasius's brother. So they're all related, but exactly whose father to who and whose brother to who is a little unclear. But in this case, we're just going to call Arsenius's son is Eleutherius and his nephew is Anastasius. Why are all their names A names? Eleutherius is an E name. <laughs> Why are they all vowels? Because it's, it's aesthetic. I mean, Eleutherius, we know, is a Greek name, so there could be a theme there. At least it's not, at least it's not Constantine in. <laughs> Constance, Constantius, Constantine. <laughs> All of that, yeah. How this next event happens is very unclear, primarily because it's been removed or conveniently left out from some of the sources. To be clear, this event that we're going to talk about makes no appearance whatsoever in the Liber Pontificalis, and Raymond Davis, our editor, confirms that this is absolutely intentional. Which, of course, will make sense if you consider that Anastasius is thought to be one of the authors of the Liber Pontificalis. The person who wrote it, yeah. Yeah. Because this is going to go places. So remember how Pope Hadrian had his wife and daughter come to live with him in the Lateran? Yes. On March 10th of 868, Eleutherius kidnaps them both, forcibly marries the daughter and all that that horrific sentence implies, and holds her mother captive. How old is the mother? I assume she's maybe like 60, 70. Yeah, probably about that age. We have no actual commentary on how old the daughter is, but she has now been kidnapped and forcibly married. Yeah, yeah. Originally, I would have assumed she would be like, you know, 40, 50, but never having been married, maybe they had her later in life. So I don't know. Yeah, and it is it is sort of implied that she was engaged to someone else, but that doesn't make this situation better or worse. It's just... He has literally come in and kidnapped the Pope's wife and daughter and forcibly married the daughter. Yeah, that's not good. So we cannot be entirely sure why this is happening. But there is some speculation that this was Arsenius's planning because perhaps he thought Eleutherius marrying the Pope's daughter would further elevate the family status and that Arsenius might have had enough influence with the Pope and the Emperor to just, like, make this all okay? Mm. 
But why would you kidnap? I. Okay. I see why it's not being written down. And considering Arsenius had fled Rome to Benevento immediately after, hoping to sway the emperor and empress with wealth to gain immunity for Eleutherius, it seems that this is his plan, right? This is, this is something we're going to force and make it happen, but we have enough good standing with the emperor that he will then force the pope to be okay. Now, again... Dr. Clemens Gantner also suggested that marriages like this weren't entirely unheard of at the time, and that Eleutherius's abduction may have been more of a like a running away together, and could be compared to the situation we briefly discussed in Nicholas's episode, where the daughter of Charles the Bald, Judith of Flanders, had run away and married without her father's permission. So Perhaps Eleutherius uh, kidnapped her in order to force the Pope to allow them to wed. We don't know this for sure, of course. It's, it's a possibility to consider. None of the sources that discuss this event suggest it that way, if they mention it at all. But perhaps. But clearly, things have gone supremely wrong. And, of course, Hadrian is furious and went immediately to the emperor to inform him of the kidnapping of his daughter and wife to get him to help. And Louis's like, oh, this is not good. Why is this happening? And he dispatches several imperial officials to track down Eleutherius and rescue the women. But somehow, Eleutherius was tipped off. A mole. A spy. Yeah. Do you want to guess who the speculative spy is? Well, I was just going to say it was Anastasius Bibliotecus. Ding, ding. Yes. It's very possible that Anastasius was the one to let him know he's about to be arrested. And Eleutherius says, nuts to that. And in a fit of rage or desperation, he murdered both women. Oh, Okay, nope, I needed to let that sink in for a second. What? He's just murdered the Pope's wife and daughter. Okay, well, someone's getting excommunicated. Oh no, he was then promptly executed by the officials. Excommunicated from life. And unfortunately, somewhere in this whole debacle, while this is all happening, while the Pope's wife and daughter are being murdered, Arsenius also died? while on the way to the emperor in Benevento. So we can't be entirely sure of what part he actually played in all of this because there's no investigation. The Annals of Saint-Berton have him dying talking with demons and that he died, quote, without having received communion, he departed to hell his real home. His real home. His real home. Okay. Eleutherius is now dead and Arsenius is now dead. The Pope's family has just been murdered. Is he going to be okay? Or is he going to be like, you know, when you have two birds and one bird dies and then the other bird dies? I mean, it, it, it does feel like that's a real possibility. This is a devastated and broken man. If he just like fell down dead, none of us would blame him. 
Mm-hmm. And especially considering that the perpetrators of this crime are also dead. There's no one to to vent and rage at. But there is. There's his advisor, Anastasius, who is directly related. Who's related to them, yes. Yeah. And may have been the one to tip him off, precipitating the murders. There's even one source, a man called Ado, who claimed that Anastasius had urged Eleutherius into violence. But, I mean, this is just sort of a hearsay moment. But nevertheless, Hadrian summons Anastasius before a synod in October of 868 at St. Prosody and publicly renews the excommunication against him and condemns him to a perpetual exile of 40-plus miles from Rome. And I mean, honestly, who could blame him? Nobody. It's just terrible. What happens next with Anastasius is not well documented, but there is more to his story, and we will cover all of that on his Patreon episode. But as you can see, I couldn't really spoil the whole, hey, he was involved with the murder of the Pope's family before we did. Yes, I understand. But this is not the moment where Hadrian will fall down dead. He is not a dead bird. He has to go on. He has more papacy to do and more things to handle. So we're going to jump straight from murder to uh, schisms. Schisms. The Photian schism. Do you remember Photius in our last episode? Yeah, over there in Constantinople being elevated to his post too quickly. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. So we last left Patriarch Photius in Constantinople, having excommunicated Pope Nicholas and the whole of the Western Church, officially on the grounds that they were preaching heresy to the Bulgars, aka converting the Bulgars to a Latin Christianity, which turned them away from the Byzantines, but actually because Pope Nicholas had refused to acknowledge him as patriarch and excommunicated him for his uncanonical ordination. Now, remember that Pope Nicholas had died before he was made aware of the excommunication, which was just as well, because shortly after Photius made his excommunication, the emperor in Constantinople, Michael III, was deposed and assassinated by Basil I, And Emperor Basil had no time for Photius. And seeing his opportunity to reconcile with the Pope, he deposes Photius and reinstalls the previous patriarch, Ignatius, in the Fourth Council of Constantinople in 869. This council, by the way, is the eighth ecumenical council of the church, but will not be getting its own episode because we'll cover it all here. It was primarily held to condemn Photius and end the schism, and to confirm the support for the veneration of icons in the East, ending that second burst of iconoclasm. But this was not the end of Photius, exactly, because Ignatius, the new emperor, and Photius all reconcile together. They all have come together, they have a meeting of the minds, They decide they're all at peace with one another. And when Ignatius dies, Photius was recalled to once more be patriarch. This time, slightly more legitimately. And this leads to a complicated situation where we have a 
second Fourth Council of Constantinople in 879, which is also considered ecumenical in the East. The first Fourth Council of Constantinople in 869 is considered the Eighth Ecumenical Council in the West, and the second Fourth Council of Constantinople in 879 is considered the Eighth Ecumenical Council in the East. Just to mess your brain up. Are you following? I am a little bit, yes. There's two Fourth Councils of Constantinople. The first one condemns Photius, and so that one's the one that is recognized in the West. The second one that happens 10 years later, recalling Photius and making sure it's okay, is the one that the East follows because obviously he's now their patriarch. That is beyond the scope of Adrian's papacy, though. I just wanted to lay it out clear now because... It's all very complicated when we start talking about the first fourth council and the second fourth council. And it's also not going to be the end of Photius because he gets deposed again in 886. But we're going to circle back to that first fourth council of Constantinople happening here during Adrian's papacy, the one of 869, because it does have a couple more points we need to talk about, especially because it's the one recognized in the West. So first, in condemning Photius, the council upheld Rome's authority to have precedence over the Patriarch of Constantinople and forbade secular interference with the Pope. And we see this outlined in Canon 21. Quote, No secular authority shall treat disrespectfully or seek to depose any of the five patriarchs. Rather, are they to be highly honored especially the Pope of Old Rome, then the Patriarchs of Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Nor shall anyone direct against the Pope of Old Rome any libelous or defamatory writings, as was done recently by Photius and earlier by Dioscorus. If a secular authority shall attempt to expel the Pope or any of the other Patriarchs, let him be anathema. And if an ambiguity or controversy concerning the Holy Church of the Romans be brought before a general council, the question should be examined and disposed of with becoming respect and reverence, and no sentence should be boldly pronounced against the supreme pontiff of the elder Rome. So, big, right? This is them saying that, again, this is papal primacy This is apostolic succession. This is us at the top of the church over Constantinople, over everything. Pope Nicholas would have considered this a huge win. And this is one place where we actually do see Hadrian continuing that forceful policy. Big win. Huge win. Huge. Huge. Now, second, this council also brings about the conclusion of the Bulgarian conversation. The grains. As opposed to the Franks. The the Bulgars. The Bulgar. Yes. Because unless, unless somebody eats a lot of health food, they're not going to know where you're going with that. I don't know. I don't eat a lot of health food. Why do I know what it is? I don't even know. Is it a particularly good baking grain, Bulgar? I think they use it in a lot of, like, porridges? Either way. Bulgar. Gonna look it up. It's like, it's like Odie. <laughs> Parboiled groats. 
<laughs> Gross is a terrible word. <laughs> it sure is. So, the the groats, uh, the Bulgars. <laughs> They're the groats now. So last week, we left the Bulgar Khan Boris having turned to the Pope and the Latin missionaries and having requested the Bishop Formosus for his Archbishop, to which Nicholas had responded by recalling Formosus as he was already a bishop consecrated to a see and then sending new priests in Formosus's place. And it turns out that Boris was not happy with any of these replacement priests and was very upset that he could not have Formosus. He rejected all other candidates, and actually even wrote to Pope Hadrian directly, asking, with no uncertain terms, no way unavoidably, can we have Formosus back? <laughs> they really like him. Also, I know why I know what Bulgar is. It's in Tabula. Oh, okay. Tabula, yeah, for sure. So... Remember, Nicholas had sort of, like, played it cool and refused to sort of directly say no about the Formosus issue. So now Hadrian has the unfortunate job of declining Boris's request and explaining that a bishop just absolutely cannot transfer sees. This is a rule. It's at the heart of the church. But as we've seen with other things, Boris does not like being told no. Because as much as we saw him turn from the Byzantines when they denied him, he's now turning away from the Pope because he's been denied Formosus and going back to the Byzantines. He writes to the patriarch Ignatius and invited him to send missionaries to the Bulgar kingdom, which Ignatius did, along with overtures that Perhaps they were too hasty before, and if Boris truly wanted an autocephalous archbishop, then he could do that for him. Sure. Sure. They're basically just trying to make election promises at this point. Yeah, this thing that goes against all of our church hierarchy that you want and we said no. Yeah, we'll make that happen now. And although Ignatius was on good terms with the papacy... If he could have this massive conversion to a Greek Christianity and a stronger obedience to him, he's going to take it. He's going to lure this con, this groat, back from groat. the Pope. What a terrible word. I just hope that people don't get confused that we're not actually saying, like, Croat of the Croatians, because we're going to get to them in time, too. So uh, it's not that. <laughs> no, it's a groat, as in a... An oat that is giard. <laughs> you know, that was the same brain moment because you were, as you were saying it, you said an oat that, and I just went gird in my brain. <laughs> and then you giard. So, yeah, we were on the same wavelength again. A gur oat. <laughs> the oat's been gird. So this is what happens, right? The, the papal legates present at the council made it clear that Pope Hadrian was unwilling to confirm the Bulgars under the jurisdiction of the Patriarchate. But unfortunately, this is where the Bulgars' loyalty is now firmly affixed, and there wasn't much that the Pope could do about it at this point. In the words of Horace K. Mann, quote, It would have been well for Formosus himself, if he had been transferred to a Bulgarian sea, and as Boris was very much attached to him, 
Bulgaria might have been thus preserved in the unity of the Roman Church. And to that, I say to all of the people who know what's coming, could you imagine if Formosus had been transferred? We would have lost one of the most famous moments in all of papal history. Well, yeah, but also, what a good thing to go back in time and mess with. (laughs) Right? I mean, this is a moment that could have been real good for Formosus's future body, I guess. I mean... (laughs) But he is a lot more famous today. (laughs) So this loss of the Bulgars was keenly felt, but it does end up being somewhat mitigated by missionary work with other Slavic tribes in the regions of Moravia, which is the modern-day Czech Republic region, and Pannonia, which is modern-day Hungary, Austria, Croatia. The Slavs here were being converted in the kingdom of Moravia by two prominent missionaries, Saints Cyril and Methodius, who are now known as the Apostles of the Slavs. Very, very famous, important saints in this region of the world. They're real good at what they're doing. So good at what they're doing. And Cyril and Methodius had been sent by the Byzantine Emperor Michael III at the request of the Prince of Moravia, Radislav. So note that these are Greek Christian missionaries. But due to their success in Moravia, Pope Nicholas had invited the brothers to come to Rome, likely hoping to sway them to present a Latin Orthodox to these new Christians. But have you considered the Western thought? Have you considered the filioque, right? (laughs) So they arrive in Rome, they decide to come. And they were greeted by Pope Hadrian instead, who praised them for their work, ordained both brothers as priests personally, since they were actually still technically laymen, and consecrated Methodius to be the Archbishop of Sirmium, with jurisdiction over all of Moravia and Pannonia for when he returned. You know, I would not appreciate getting an invite by one pope showing up and then there's another pope and then just having him make me like a nun. Well, an archbishop. I mean, I'm like, I-, I don't want that. I came for a visit. But this is this is what they were doing, right? He's just saying, hey, all of that work you're doing, you now get to be the boss of that work you're doing. Okay. But there's a lot of vows and some commitments when you're a priest. And when you're, you know, when you take the, the cloth, just, you, do, you don't want to go on vacation and suddenly, <laughs> uh. I mean, fair, but I think that they, I think Methodius was happy about it, at least. At least one of them is happy about it. Well, Cyril actually is not made the archbishop of anything. He's not given any jurisdiction because he was actually quite ill. And so he just decides that since they're in Rome, he's going to stay there and be a monk rather than travel all that way back. So he's probably pretty happy with it, too. Well, if that's like your only choice, once you've suddenly surprised get ordained. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure that Pope Hadrian, who is probably still reeling from the murder of his family, asked for consent. (laughs) Like. Do you want to be a priest was probably his first question. But, okay, come on. If the Pope came up to you and was like, hey, do you want to be a nun right now, Bree? Like, right now? 
I feel like you would make a really good nun. <laughs> would you, how would you let him down gently? I mean, is it Pope Francis or is it Pope Hadrian II? <laughs> it's going to be Pope Francis. How would uh, you let him down? Oh, that would be, you're right. It would be very, very difficult. I think maybe I would just, no, I don't even know what I would do because I want to go and work in the Vatican with Pope Francis. Bye, Jordan! <laughs> Can't say no. What an opportunity, though. <laughs> no, I don't actually want to be a nun. But if Pope Francis asked you... I'd, I'd probably be like, yeah, sure, uh-huh, and then have to walk it back later. <laughs> I mean, I, he, my Italians, I would probably miss it and just be saying yes, excitedly <laughs> to everything anyways, so accidental nunnery so methodius is now going to be the archbishop of sirmium he's going to go back he's going to have all of this jurisdiction and most importantly pope hadrian permitted the missionaries to translate the liturgy from latin into the slavonic tongue which went a great deal towards easing the conversion process Methodius and Cyril would actually create the first Slavic alphabet based on the local language in order to transcribe the liturgy, which is called the Glagolithic or the Glagolitic alphabet. And through their efforts, since they now came from the Pope, Moravia and Pannonia's conversion was into the Western Latin Church, unlike the Bulgars. Also, side note, when Cyril and Methodius came to Rome, they brought with them what they believed to be the relics of Pope St. Clement, which were then housed in the Basilica di San Clemente. Now, we did mention this in Clement's episode way back when, which is episode six, so it has now come full circle. And this is also, of course, the same Pope Clement whose relic was found in the trash in Britain. Oh, yeah, okay. You remember that, right, when we started our podcast? Uh Uh-huh, it was in the garbage. I was literally at your house after we we just launched our first episode when that news story broke. Mm Mm-hmm. So, he's, uh, he's coming full circle again. But there is actually even a fresco of this moment of Cyril and Methodius bringing the relics of Pope St. Clement to Pope Hadrian II. And I have just sent it to you. Oh, look at this beautiful painting. What are these piles of cotton candy that have clearly been scrubbed off? <laughs> that's, that's, that's like effacement, you know, it's missing mural. I, I love how happy and young Pope Hadrian II looks, which is... Considering he's supposed to be like 75. And also just had his family murdered. So, well, you yeah, know... You know so apparently getting your family murdered takes like 30 years off your life. <laughs> I wonder if this was um a painting of Pope Nick and they just and they just finally finished it and we're like it's going to be the other one. <laughs> well, maybe that maybe that's it because that that seems he does seem very young. He seems very happy. Look at that guy's really tall skull. <laughs> Oh, the one with the little hat? I don't think it's a hat. (laughs) (laughs) That would be quite a skull. That's why he needs that tonsure. There are some serious tonsures in this picture. There are hundreds of people in a crowd, and all you see of all of them is the tonsure. Tonsures as far as the eye can see. 
Um, okay. Is there a headless man? No, it's a guy laying down. A guy laying that's down. That's the relics of Pope Clement there. he That's his there body, you know. Okay. That's why All he right. gets the halo. He's so holy, you know. I thought that if you were alive when a thing was painted, you got square halos. You do. You so do. So are all of these people dead at the time of painting? Yep. This is this would be in the Basilica of San Clemente. So it's um, definitely something that was made after this actual moment happened. So they were definitely dead. Which is a perfect segue because Pope Hadrian II and died. He died. <laughs> he died on December 14th of 872. And if you're paying very close attention, which no one should be paying this close of attention, that is exactly five years from the date that he was consecrated. Wow. Yeah. So he died on his papal anniversary. (laughs) So he was buried in St. Peter's on the, quote, right-hand side of St. Peter's between one of the intercolumnations in the area of the sacristy. And then he was destroyed for new St. Peter's? Correct. But we actually have fragments of his epitaph. Here Mother Earth buried in ashes whatever she took from the dust but gave his soul to heaven. He was a pious and peaceful man, brighter than the sky, generous to the rich and poor alike. Moderate to all, for everyone held him dear. Bounteous, eminent, upright, and good everywhere, for which reason, onlooker, by right you should implore God with tears, that he may now be with his Lord above the stars. You who read these verses, say with sung heart, O Hadrian, may you live with Christ our God. I really wish they'd mentioned, you know, his wife and daughter. Right? But again, it's missing from everywhere, and that was the thing. I was like, the Pope's family has been murdered. Why is nobody talking about this? I actually yelled to this effect, at you many times, but I had to just say, here is a thing. Why is nobody talking about the thing? <laughs> the thing. The thing. I'm mad about things. And I'm like, Capri. Yeah. Why is nobody talking about this massive moment in history? But here we are. We're talking about it. We're setting the record straight and we're doing right by Pope Hadrian's wife, Stefania, and his daughter, who doesn't have a name, apparently. That's Pope Hadrian II, and it is now time to write him, and this should be interesting. Papatum infallium. This is a long episode. I know you told me it was going to be long, but look how <laughs> long. This is also going to be a hard one to judge, because Hadrian generally receives sort of a mixed bag of opinions. Some historians will argue that Hadrian solidly maintained the foundations put in place by Pope Nicholas, while others like J.J. Norwich will say he squandered, quote, in just five years, virtually all that Nicholas had gained. So, bad. The Bulgars were lost to Latin Christianity. But this was because the Pope was upholding an important canon law and Boris was Fighty, so we can debate whether we should fault him for that. And on the flip side to that, so good, the Slavs were brought into the Latin Christianity through the use of their own language in the liturgy. The biggest good is that he ends the Photian schism and defends the primacy of the Pope over the patriarch, 
And in the Eighth Ecumenical Council, he renews condemnation for secular influence on the papacy. That is a big win. Remember, we're all like, huge, huge. That's his huge, huge moment. Now, let's also consider that Hadrian had rejected the papacy twice by this point. So he comes to the papal throne not as someone looking for power or influence, but likely because he genuinely thought he could do some good. I would like to give him, I think I'm going to give him probably about an eight. Okay. Okay. I'm feeling pretty strong. He did some good, a lot of good. And a lot of the the bad that came about for him wasn't necessarily about his leadership. Mm-hmm. He did kind of inherit the, the potential for chaos. After. Yeah. yeah, the potential for chaos, and nothing went wrong really. That's except, true. You know the murder thing, <laughs> except the murder, which is is fair. Yeah, I think it, it is good. The things that are bad are not his fault. I can't go as high as an eight. I'm thinking like a six because papal primacy is huge. Um, so that will give him a fourteen. And I also want to say in this category, and I'm saying it now because it won't give him any points, it was also Pope Hadrian II that canonized St. Walburga, who you will know a lot about if you are on our Patreon. This is our Iliophor saint, the sister of Willibald and Winnebald, and the one who is associated with Walpurgisnacht. So, fun little pontifact right there. Pontifact! Fructus prohibitum. So there is something to talk about here in that even in becoming Pope, Hadrian did not set his family aside. His wife and daughter came to live with him in the Lateran. And it's very clear that some of the sources definitely think he wasn't celibate. So if we agree that he and his wife were still being husband and wife, he gets some points here. But only, mm, only like, you look, Let's give him, like, two points. Because, I think that's like, fair. Because he was being a bigamist and not for anything else. You can't marry both your wife and Jesus. It's not good. True. I mean, but it is the tamest of all scandal. Ooh, you had sex with your wife? Oh, boy. So two points each or one each or just two from you? Two points. I don't know what. It, what? It, I don't. Two points total. Yeah, I'm. I'm here for a one and one. So he'll get two points in fructus prohibitum. Seculari impactum. I'm going to start this off with a quote from Raymond Davis, who says Hadrian would prove conveniently weaker than Nicholas in the face of imperial pressure, and this is relatively true. So if we look at this. Working against him, he was placed under surveillance by Louis II and seemed to just sort of accept this. And that whole situation ended tragically with the death of his family. Yeah. Yeah, it's not great. But at the same time, if Louis is your only defense against the Saracen incursion and he's continuing to support the emperor and crown him publicly and throw his weight behind him, it probably makes sense that you'd be like, yeah, okay, you're surveilling me. It makes sense at this point, right? He does attempt to mediate between the Frankish kings when they start fighting each other. No real success there. Uh, he resolved the divorce situation with Lothair by returning him to communion 
even though it was clear that Lothair was lying to make this happen, and the Pope definitely knew he was lying. And another quote from Horace K. Mann is that Rome was neither more nor less vulnerable than it had been before his election. So even though we have this horrible sort of like random pillaging right at the beginning, that is not his fault. Yeah, no, that was somebody reading the memo wrong. So there's not... There's not a lot of good for him here. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to give him maybe only a one in this category. I think that probably makes sense. I mean, he he isn't, he doesn't really have a lot of time to focus five on what's going so. on in the city. Well, he has five years, but his wife and daughter are murdered in that time, and he's got fighting Carolingian kings. I don't think he's, I think he's got his hands full. I think a one- is is fair. He's not doing much. He'll get a two. Fossium Sanctus. So, um, just think about the story that I've told you about this man and his family as I send you this image. Wow. That is a Pope whose family has been murdered. This is a man who has a Netflix comedy special that just says, my family's dead. That's the title of his Netflix comedy special. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess? <laughs> he looks like he's been punched in the face repeatedly and is very sad and does not want to sit for this portrait. Um, no, he does not look like he wants to be here. I mean, it's a, it's a far cry from the mural. It really is. The man in the mural has more hair and is way happier. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... What is this Netflix comedy special worth to you? <laughs> I'll give him like a six. A six? Okay, okay. He, there, there is definitely someone that he reminds me of. And I can't put my finger Maybe on it. Maybe it's not a comedy special. Maybe it's like a docuseries. That, you know, yeah, it could be. It could be a docuseries. I think I'm going to match your six because I can't quite put my finger on who he reminds me of, but he looks, I look at this image and I believe this, I believe the narrative that we've been talking about this whole time because wow, he, he just looks so sad. Is it Weird Al? Does he look like Weird Al? Hang on. Don't hug me, bud. I'm looking at pictures of Weird <laughs> Al, but I can't find anywhere he's not smiling. <laughs> I'm... I think it's Weird Al. No, no. It's definitely, like, someone in a TV show that's been punched in the face many times. I don't... Either way, I'm going to give him a 6. He'll get a 12, and when we score that out, it's a rounded 3 for Facium Sanctus. But I do have other images for you to look at. It may be Weird Al. Okay, that's way closer than I wanted it to be. <laughs> I mean, that's not it in my brain, but that is alarmingly close. <laughs> Weird. I never would have thought of that. Speaking of Pope images, there was a Pope very early on that you thought looked like the guy who plays King Richard from Gallivant. Yeah. And Jordan's been watching Gallivant for the first time. And he's like, I love King Richard so much. So I was thinking of like trying to remember which Pope we said looked like him. Here's two more images for you to look at of Pope Hadrian. I don't think either of them are any... There's a Jafif for you. Oh, a Jafif. 
But they're they are the one definitely looks more angry than sad. What's this one looks like a troll doll. A Furby. A the Jafif? Furby. Yeah. Yeah. It does it does have a very sort of action figure-y quality to it, 90s doesn't it? Toy. It definitely does. And then the other one is just almost the same, but with angry brows. So mad. Tempest Pontificus. December 14th, 867 to December 14th, 872. Exactly five years and a score of 1.25. All right, everybody. It's the canon bonus round. No. I kind of wish that he was a saint because... I don't know, I feel like now it would be the, the patron saint of dark Netflix comedy specials or something, but... <laughs> There's a lot of those. There are! I mean, have you seen Jimmy Carr's new image? No, he's got a new one? He oh. has a new one! I don't know how to deal with him in his little laugh sometimes. <laughs> I love like, he says laugh. things, and then he does that, <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> whatever you just said does not warrant the Winnie the Pooh laugh after it. Oh, I, I I actually found a clip of Jimmy Carr just laughing for a minute straight, and it was just ha, 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 over and yeah, over again. It was No, when he actually laughs, it's very similar, so that definitely is his laugh. He's not putting it on, but like, wow. Wow, Jimmy. <laughs> Amazing. So that brings us to our total score for Pope Hadrian II, which is a 22.25, which is very respectable and puts him in 46th place. But now we have a question, and this, this one's going to be interesting because this is a question about being papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull. I want you to remember that all of the sources just ignore the fact that his family was murdered. And I really, really wanted to tell you about this Pope. And I want to tell everybody about this Pope because his family was murdered. But is that bull-worthy, Brie? It is one of the most wild things we have covered so far, and there is no explanation for it. But is it (laughs) (laughs) bull-worthy? He defended papal primacy very well. He had to follow someone like Nicholas the Deluxe. He he has this wild story. He's tied to some of the most notable figures of his day. I want to make an argument for him, but you're probably right that it's not bullworthy. So I am willing to relent on that, but I did have to try and fight <laughs> the good fight for him because his family was murdered and literally the sources ignore it well that brings us to the end of the episode sorry pope adrian you have not made a bull but we have some thank yous to make and some patrons to absolve of their temporal sins so we want to say thank you to lynette white dan and melinda haunton ego te absolvo So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. And now you can rate podcasts on Spotify. So you should be doing that for all your favorite podcasts. Oh yeah, you can, can't you? But you have to listen to like 30 minutes, 30 seconds, 30 30 seconds. (laughs) Look, if you're listening to us on Spotify right now, you can leave a review and we would be so appreciative. And if you're not, don't go out of your way. 
Look, if you haven't listened to this podcast for 30 seconds, you haven't heard this anyway, so it's all good. It's fine. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist. Or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifexpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.